Hello, friends, and welcome to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for all of us who are looking for faith beyond the fences. Thank you so much for joining us, and I'm so excited for this episode. This is episode 15 of the podcast, and I'm super excited because we are being joined for this episode by Shane Claiborne. And Shane is someone many of you may know for his work as an author and a speaker and an activist for social justice issues around the nation and around the world. I was really grateful to spend a little time talking with Shane the other day about a really wide range of subjects from his work with the poor in Philadelphia to his Red Letter Christians movement and his work against gun violence and the death penalty just to kind of scratch the surface of our conversation. So let's not waste any more time and let's get to our chat with Shane Claiborne. We're living in a time that may be another great awakening, you know, a beautiful renewal or a new reformation that's happening in the church. We're really happy to welcome uh, Shane Claiborne to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. A lot of you may know Shane by his work. Um, Shane, you and I actually, you probably don't remember it, but it was more memorable for me. We met at Wild Goose Festival last year um, a couple of times, actually, but uh, the most memorable time for me was we had a really interesting conversation in um, Pete Enz's um, Convo Hall chat about should we continue to use the label Christianity? Um, and so, yeah, we got a chance to be in a little bit of conversation there. Uh, now that was, that was really interesting. And that was kind of what started, um, the idea in my head that maybe we could conspire on something like this somewhere down the road, because yeah, um, you said some really interesting things there. Uh, so if you would, like I say, I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with who you are and, and with some of the work, uh, that you're doing, but if you could give us just a little, you know, the Reader's Digest version of the Shane Claiborne uh, background, um, and then we'll we'll kind of go from there. Well, thank you, man. Yeah, it's good to be on your show here. I, I'm a Southern boy that grew up in East Tennessee, fell in love with Jesus, uh, ended up going to college up here in Philadelphia at a wonderful little school, Eastern University. It's about a half hour outside of Philly. Uh, and while I was in college, undergrad there, I was studying sociology and studying the Bible and a group of homeless moms moved into an abandoned Catholic church building. Um, And at the time there were thousands of families on the waiting list for housing and shelter space in Philly. And so they didn't have anywhere to go. And they saw this old church building and said, we ought to be able to make that home for now. And so they moved into it. And, uh, um, Sadly, the Catholic Church considered them trespassing and gave them an eviction notice, and that didn't stop them, though. The families uh, held a press conference and said, we've talked to the real owner of this building, the Lord Almighty. (laughs) 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 And God said we can stay until we have somewhere else to go. So that that sparked a real student solidarity movement for us, and we became involved in that struggle for housing, fell in love with this neighborhood on the north side of Philly, and um, as we, as I graduated from college, we started the simple way. So we've been here, man, alive, uh, over 20 years now, Wow! wow. Bu- building a little community here. Uh, and of course, you know, all, all kinds of stuff happened, uh, 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 in between, you know, all that we uh, went to India, spent some time with uh, mother Teresa and the nuns there that, uh, taught me a lot about love and taught me a lot about Jesus. And, um, yeah, man. So we've been we've been doing it here, and then I'm heading up a 
group of folks called red letter Christians these days. That's I, I kind of have one foot. I walk on locally with my community at the simple way. Right. And then we've got the movement work with red letter Christians, which right. comes from the old Bibles that have the words of Jesus in red. And that's what we say. We want a Christianity that acts like Jesus again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you about that here. Um, as we go forward, I think I kind of, I first became aware of your work probably I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, I was starting to become aware of folks like Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and um, was kind of in a probably some kind of a deconstruction. I don't think I had that language for it yet then, um, but just kind of unpacking, you know, the, the faith that I'd grown up with and some of the inconsistencies that I was seeing. And and, and people like like you and, and Brian McLaren and Rob Bell and some of those folks were starting to give me a, a different and what I thought was a better view of Jesus than than what I felt like I'd sort of inherited. Um, and and I think at that time I kind of needed that because I, I think otherwise my deconstruction would have spiraled into like nihilism, you know. Yeah, um, sure. And um, but but to see that that Jesus wasn't just this human extension of some angry God, but was really you know a human representative of a God that was love, and so and that seems to be a lot of you know kind of what informs your ethos in the world. So. What what was it you would say informed that view of Jesus? Did, was that something that you really did literally grow up with, or did you come to that that kind of view of Jesus later in life? Or? Well, uh, you know, one of my na- I saw, I get some of my best theology from my neighbors, and one of them who speaks Spanish for you know as her first language, she says sometimes we make all this stuff too complicated, you know, like uh, uh, the incarnation, you know, academics and intellectuals, uh, you know, do all this talking and talking but uh, at the end of the day she said when you order your burrito con carne it means with meat and uh and she said that's that's what uh, jesus is is god with meat you know con carne incarnate uh so you know in jesus god put skin on you know it's love with fleshed out you know uh and in, in a way that we can wrap our hands around and follow and so um that uh, that that idea, you know, obviously the center of red letter Christians is that Jesus is the lens through which we interpret the Bible yeah. and the, the lens through which we interpret the world. So there's a lot of great uh, theology out there these days on that. But, you know, some of it comes from the streets, too. It's it's uh, um, this idea that Christians are to act like Jesus. You know, that's what Christian means, Christ-like. And, you know, obviously we haven't always lived up to that high calling. Yeah. And, and uh, there's a lot of versions of Christianity that, that, as I like to say, they don't pass the sniff test. You know, they, yeah, don't, yeah. they don't smell like Jesus. Uh, so I don't see, you know, uh, I, th- I think a tree is known by its fruits. Jesus said they'll know that we are Christians by our love. So that's what we're after. Um, yeah, but growing up, you know, I, I had lots of different experiences with the church. I mean, I was in the Bible Belt, you know, in the thick of it. So I, I grew up Methodist, but then my, my parents were Southern Baptist. I mean, my grandparents were Baptist. My uh, um, friends in high school were charismatic, so I got involved in kind of the charismatic uh side of things, which there's parts that I loved, you know, the idea that God's still alive in the world, miracles yeah, yeah. possible, the fire, the spirit, you know, got rebaptized, and, you know, there's still a lot of that to, that, that's inside of me. And I think in most of the church traditions that we come out of, there's uh, there's treasures that are worth holding on to, and there's plenty of bones, you know, that we need to spit out. But uh, I'm kind of a spiritual mutt now, you know, I've been formed by my charismatic uh uh, uh, side of things. I've been still got the Methodist uh, 
you know, DNA in me. I've got uh, the Catholics that have helped shape me. So, um, yeah, man. And, 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 you know, I, so I think there's things that are worth deconstructing. Um, but I, you know, I have some concerns about, uh, uh, some of the things that are happening in, in our culture that, uh, are sort of just reacting to the most toxic versions of, uh, evangelicalism. Um, and they, sometimes I think we can give that too much power. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right. You know, in West Virginia, we we call folks like that methobapticostals, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, so we, yeah, we're all in Appalachia. We've got a lot of uh, those kind of spiritual mutts, as you as you put it here. But yeah, I think I think you're right about that idea that um, we very often want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, when it comes to um, matters of religion and spirituality, that um, yeah, there's certainly things that need to be critiqued. Um, but, you know, there, there's still a lot of good at the heart of it, too. And and I think that's, you know, what I see a lot of the work you're doing and what we're trying to do um, with with this podcast and some of the other work I'm involved in is how can we drill down to that good, the, the concarne, right? The the good Jesus meat, so to speak, of, you know, what we have in common and, and what we're really called to do. I was um I was at Asbury Seminary in the around 2011 to 2014. And I remember when I was there, you were doing. At some point, you were doing a series of interviews with um, J.D. Walt there um, for the Seedbed site. And I remember, um, in fact, I went back and watched it the other day. You did a little video with him about the Sermon on the Mount. And I think at that time, I was probably taking a, um, you know, an inductive Bible study class or something on Matthew. And I was really deep into that text. And and some of what you were saying and reading um, Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, kind of sent me into this deep dive on the Sermon on the Mount. And I know that's something, you know, when we talk about the red letters, that's something um, that, that I've read that really informs your um, kind of, you know, your faith in action um, kind of motivation. Um, could you talk a little bit about why you find the Sermon on the Mount so compelling and and what maybe, you know, other Christians might do to see? Because what's happened for me is I've that's become kind of my lens to view the whole Bible, right? I more yeah, or less yeah. interpret everything through the Sermon on the Mount. And so, um, yeah, what, what do you find compelling about that? How does it continue to motivate your day-to-day work? Oh, man. Yeah, I, I you know, it was Gandhi. He read the Sermon on the Mount pretty much every day. And I, I like when, you know, he was asked about Christianity. He said, oh, I love Jesus. I just wish the Christians acted more like them, yeah, yeah. more like him. You know, they, uh, Christians so often look, look very uh, unlike their Christ. And I, you know, I, I, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, you, you really couldn't come up with much more of a countercultural uh, message, uh, you know, and lifestyle. I, I think, I think that a lot of what I grew up with in the church was, just about a belief system, you know, a set of doctrines that you kind of signed on the bottom line of, but that what I love about Jesus is you don't see that. I mean, it's not an invitation, just a a doctrine, you know, the word becomes flesh and we see like in Jesus, an invitation to join a a revolution, a movement of God's love in the world, you know, and, and that means um, holding our possessions differently. You know, Jesus said, uh, live like the lilies and the sparrows. They don't worry about tomorrow. Sell your possessions and give them the poor, you know, and Jesus said, love your enemies. He questioned, you know, kind of the boundaries of love and pushed us to extend beyond 
uh, family, as he said, you know, unless you're, you, you love bigger than your own biology and you get born again. I mean, we've made that a lot of that language pretty, uh, trite and cliche, but yeah. you know, mother Teresa said, one of our biggest problems is that the circle that we put around our family is too small. Mm. That's a great line. The yeah. circle we put around our family is too small. So, you know, that's why nationalism and patriotism are, uh, so dangerous is that they just, they're, they're too small. You know, we're to love as big as God loves and God's love uh, is bigger than biology. It's bigger than national nationality, you know, and um, this idea that we're born again, uh, that, you know, is, is a radical, radical idea. You know, it says if someone's suffering on the other, other side of a wall on our border, it's as tragic as if it was our own flesh and blood, yeah. you know, our own mom or dad or child. So that call to love big, um, is there, but you know, some of the other stuff Jesus does in the sermon on the Mount is he, you know, he pronounces the beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, the merciful, mm. uh, you know, and, and he's emphasizing all these, these folks that have really been pushed aside. And yeah. I mean, you, you look at the values of our, uh, kind of contemporary culture and the, the dominant systems of power and, you know, we bless the already blessed. We we don't bless the meek. You know, you want the proud. Yeah, <laughs> you, don't, yeah. you don't want the peacemakers. You want the folks that are going to annihilate the enemy, you know? So, yeah, I, I think Jesus's message is an affront to so much that we've come to uh, uh, adore in America. And it really kind of names the uh, idolatry of, of, of America. You know, I mean, Trump, I think, is just the latest manifestation of that. But there's yeah. so much that Trump has only surfaced. You know, he's a symptom of, I think, that's, that's kind of um, um, emboldened some of the worst principalities and powers that were already there in America. But you kind of, you, you, you and that's, that's why, you know, I, I find so much uh, of a problem with Trump uh, policies and lifestyle is it's not that I'm anti-Trump. I'm just pro Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you bounce the sermon on the Mount off of the things that we're seeing in our country, you couldn't come up with a, m a more, more stark, you know, contrast. Uh, so yeah. And then, you know, one of my concerns as we talk about, you know, the, the narrative of Christianity is there's a lot of people that have rejected that, you know, they say that they've given up on the institutional church or whatever. But as you kind of um, unpack that a little bit, what they really rejected a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times is uh, kind of this distorted narrative of American nationalism. Yeah. That, camouflaging itself as Christianity, but it doesn't pass the sniff test. You know, it doesn't look like Jesus. And, and so um, for a lot of people, I think saying no to that version of Christianity is the beginning, uh, not the end, but it's the beginning of maybe a more authentic faith. I, th I think you're right. I think there's, there's this culture of hyper-individualism that's been growing in the global West in general, but America specifically, I think, for you know, probably a century or so. And, and I think you're right. I think what we're seeing politically is the product of that, that, you know, my, my particular rights are more important than anyone else's that, you know, we uphold the, the sovereign self as our highest value. And, and I wonder some of us locally here in some of my community, we've been talking a lot about like maybe this time of pandemic is helping us recapture that sense of common good. And and I hear that a lot from folks who are kind of in this, you know, deconstruction, for lack of a better term. Uh, that I think you kind of you really pointed out really well that 
that what they've left, the institution that they've left or the doctrine that they've left is really the very beginnings of constructing a better faith narrative. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think a lot of it does go back to this. You know, we've become so hyper individualistic. Um, And when we begin, when the church buys into that um, and then you get things like like nationalism, like consumer culture starts to infiltrate the church more and more. Um, so, you know, what, how does some of your work, how would some of your work that you're doing, um, specifically through red letter Christians, maybe, but even specifically on the ground, um, you know, with the simple way, um, how's that sort of, um, a a counter message to that message of hyper individualism that people can take some hope in, um, as we look at the common good, you know? Yeah. So the, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting as you look at history, I mean, even, Half the word Protestant is protest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so protest has been very important. Uh, discontentment has been one of the greatest correctives of what's gone wrong in the church. The church needs that, you know, holy discontentment and mm. whole movements, uh, monastic movements, the, the desert spirituality that happened around the time of Constantine. I mean, all of those were like kind of building a new church in the shell of the old one. And there's times over and over in church history where uh, we, we get totally confused and, and um, uh, contaminated really by Mm. those, those idols of power and uh, fame and, and um, uh, money, you know? And so we had these kind of movements as uh, Phyllis Tickle used to say, uh, every few hundred years, the church needs a rummage sale, you know, get rid of stuff and get rid of the clutter. And we got to come back to the core of our faith. Um, and, and so, you know, when I look at uh, what's happening in America, I think what's happened is uh, we've had this sort of um, branding of Christianity that uh, uh, as Wendell Berry says, uh, we, our money says in God, we trust, but our economy looks like the seven deadly sins. Mm, and, yeah. and, and, and Kierkegaard used to say where everything is Christian, nothing is Christian because you lose that essence and distinctiveness. So, you know, I, I'm not a scientist, but I understand kind of how you make a vaccine is you have a sort of diluted version of uh the disease that knocks it out of you, you know, and, and, uh, and I think it, it, there's something similar happening where, uh, one of the great dangers in America is, is inoculating people from, uh, true radical Christianity by offering this sort of, um, watered down version, you know? So a lot of us have been coming back and going, you know, we, the, the, the best critique of what's wrong is the practice of something better. Yeah. You know, so I, yeah, I that's a Richard Rohr uh, statement. Yeah, kind totally of, yeah, is, yeah. man. And, and you know what, Rich Richard's a great friend and he's, he's taught this over and over and he's a devout Catholic, you know, um, a Franciscan that also sees all the, the, you know, the contradictions and the, the, you know, the stuff, the funk of the church, but it's folks like that, that have taught me, you know, that the one pastor in my neighborhood said the church, I mean, it's kind of like Noah's Ark. Uh, and, and he said, it stinks sometimes. Think about that, you know, that giant boat with all the animals. He said, church is kind of like that it stinks sometimes. Uh, but if you jump off, you're going to drown. And what we really need to be is, is, is about trying to uh, clean up the mess, you know, and, 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 and as Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. We want to be the change that we 
we we want to see in the church. So, you know, locally, we were inspired by these, you know, these renewals in the church, St. Francis and Claire mm-hmm. and Assisi in the 13th century that heard this whisper from God say, repair my church, which is in ruins. Yeah. And literally, you know, having started in an abandoned church a couple miles from here, you know, that <laughs> that really vibed with us. And But I think, you know, we're living in a time that may be another great awakening, you know, a beautiful renewal or a new reformation that's happening in the church. Um, um, uh, so, you know, the early church in the book of Acts, that's been a big part of our inspiration, the Catholic worker movement, so many others, you know, uh, the base communities down in Latin America, there's places that we have a lot to learn from. And I think for folks that are uh, post-evangelicals or ex-evangelicals, they're leaving that kind of Trump evangelicalism. Um, What I would say is there's an invitation to see that the landscape of Christianity is much bigger than that. In fact, that's some of the, I think the most dangerous versions of Christianity, um, that are separated from justice and the poor and the kingdom coming on earth, you know? And so we end up uh, uh, losing sight of Jesus and the core values of our faith. But boy, I mean, think about what the, the historic black church, what African-Americans like the fact that the, that they have survived the horrific things that white Christians have done in their name. And many of them that cling to a, a more robust theology and faith of that read the story of Exodus of God, you know, rescuing the slaves and forming a new society like that, that this is uh, still there. So I think for folks that are coming out of those toxic versions of white evangelicalism, we should lean in to those communities uh, of liberation and, and where, you know, maybe we join some of the congregations that are led by people of color and folks that come out of struggle that keep those roots. Yeah. Not that there's not, you know, there's, I mean, every, I think every tradition, every church has got its own funk. So we're never going to find a sure. perfect, perfect church. And if we did, we'd mess it up since we yeah. got there. You know? So, but, but I think that there are um, more robust theologies, better, you know, a uh, sense of community. And when you talk about the common good, uh, I, I certainly think that, uh, you know, maybe this time of pandemic is a time of isolation or, you know, of, of, of social distancing where we come out of it with a deeper hunger for community, you know, a desire to connect and to let go of some of the clutter. I mean, after all these screens, we're probably going to want some real, uh, <laughs> you know, FaceTime and stop looking at pixels and look at people, you know, and be with people. So, yeah, um, I keep saying this is an extrovert's nightmare for me. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but you know, it's interesting because I was on this uh, Renovari, which is actually Dallas uh, Willard and Richard Foster and others. They have, we, we did a conversation about what we can learn from the desert uh, spirituality of, of, you know, the kind of uh, folks that, that fl- let, you know, that went into the desert because in the period of Constantine and stuff, the church just totally got messed up and confused and exchanged the cross of Jesus for the sword of Rome and, you know, mm. kind of like craziness. And so they, uh, but they, they lived these, this, you know, many of them, this deeply prayerful life and they, you know, um, we've got a lot to learn about that. I mean, even you think of the 40 years in the wilderness, the 40 days of Jesus in the desert. So, you know, I, I think there are some things that this space can teach us, um, and, and there's also some things that it's surfacing, you know, uh, yeah. 
as, as, as folks have said so well, the pandemic didn't break America. It just showed where America's already broken. But it does, you know, I think put a magnifying glass up to where we can see some of the real, real hard work we need to do, I, um, especially those of us who follow Jesus, that if, if we believe that the barometer of our faith is, is, is evidence not in how the Tao is doing, but how the poor are doing, as Jesus said, the least of these, um, we've sure got some work to do in our country. Yeah. How do you see that, you know, carrying forward? Because I think, you know, again, I've been in conversation with a lot of folks here locally and we talk about, you know, some of the positives that we're seeing, the the desire for connection and all of that. Once, you know, once we get a vaccine or whatever it takes to kind of end this this period of isolation, how do we carry that forward um, and not slip back into those old consumeristic, hyper-individualistic social habits like you know um because we can do it on individual levels and that's one thing and that's necessary but but how do we how do we activate our culture uh to continue that momentum do you think uh, one of the things that uh, we we should always be asking is what does love look like right mm-hmm. now in, the, in this strange season i mean at, at any point i think we should ask what what does love require of us you know what does it look like to love our neighbors ourselves? and in this you know pandemic i think love often means um uh doing things that are going to protect the most vulnerable you know uh, uh which means not worshiping in physical space right now right. to make sure we don't you know jeopardize other people's health um and 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 it, we've always believed in sacrificial love right so like uh, uh that that we are um uh, to to honor the needs of others above our own, you know, and those kinds of things. So I think that um, it's interesting because there's this kind of war between individualism and the common good, it seems like. But I don't I quote Jesus a lot more than I quote James Madison. But I'll have to give you one Madison <laughs> quote, because as I was researching gun violence, you know, in the Second Amendment, um, James Madison, you know, the the father of the constitution as he's often called and helped draft this you know that drafted he said that liberty can be endangered by the abuse of power but liberty can also be endangered by the abuse of liberty mm. a powerful line so they yeah. rec- he recognized that we can abuse our freedom and it can hurt other people and it's certainly what i think's happened with our gun violence but i think it's also you know with these militia groups with these folks that are going i got the right to you know, get a tattoo or whatever, you know, like all that stuff is surfacing. I think this idea of like my rights and the collision that that can have with um, the common good. And it's a delicate dance because I believe in human rights. You know, I believe in in those, those things. Uh, But I I also think that for all of us, we should be asking, um, you know, what, what's, what's best for other folks right now. Um, Meanwhile, you know, I, I think there are people who can take risks, um, uh, and there are young people that are partnered in some congregations with their elderly to deliver food and things like that. Even right now, we're, I'll be uh, out tomorrow. We're going to distribute probably 600 uh, uh, bags of food. Uh, and we're doing that in a the coalition. There's really smart ways that we've, uh, uh, you know, learned to do that with social distancing. Um, even here at our place today, we gave out uh, – food. We're all the time, we're giving out more food than we've ever given out in the last 20 years of our community. But we're, you know, our prayer is that we would be both careful and courageous, Mm. you know, that we would be careful so that we really love and care for people responsibly. But, um, 
you know, that we wouldn't be fearful and, you know, held captive by this, this sense of, uh, um, um, that, that, you know, I, I think fear can, um, cause us to, to not do what love requires of us sometimes. So we, we want to be uh, both courageous and cautious. Yeah. I really like how you put that. Um, you mentioned, um, in, in your comments there, your work with gun violence, and that was one of the things that I found really compelling at Wild Goose last year was the presentation that you did with, you know, beating a weapon into a garden tool. Uh, and I know that's been, you know, a big focus of your public work um, lately. I, I have a really specific interest in that since you and I are both kind of sons of Appalachia, you know, where gun culture is so prevalent. Um, you know, do, does that cultural background inform that work that you do in any way? Um, does it does it create tensions for you? Uh, and and how do we have, I guess, those kinds of conversations in places like West Virginia and Tennessee and Kentucky, you know, where, you know, hunting is so much part of the culture. Um, and, and sometimes that feels threatened when we start talking about gun violence in general. Yeah, man. Well, I, you know, as I, 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 first of all, I grew up with guns, you know, my, my family are all, um, gun owners and hunters, you know, growing up and everything. Um, my wife's t- as well. She, she's often giving me a real hard time that she's a better shot than I am, but you know, <laughs> we grew up with guns. And on a lot of these things, I, I grew up very passionate, uh, passionately, uh, on the other side of some of these issues, like the death penalty, I believed, you know, for a lot of my life that, uh, this was God's will. It was in the Bible, you know, and I had, uh, all the, the verses to back it up. And, and, and what, what I began to see was how narrowly we've come to think about what it means to be pro-life, you know, just yeah. on the issue of abortion. And I think a lot of folks would be more accurate, accurate to say that they're pro-birth or they're right. yeah. anti-abortion than that they're, they're pro-life. Because the, the irony is you can say you're pro-life in America and still be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, you know, yeah, anti-life yeah. on kind of every, everything right. else. So I, you know, I, my, my kind of framework for so much of this that I glean, that I kind of extract from Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount that I, I um, get my cues from the early Christians who for 300 years were um, just so consistently on the side of life and standing against violence, you know? And so I, I, I like to say I'm pro-life from womb to tomb, you know, I, yeah. I do think that reducing the number of abortions and, and that that issue matters. And, um, as does healthcare for those who are vulnerable and all this thing. But I think yeah, it's so much more nuanced, I think, sometimes than people want to to see, right? That to just have a, a blanket legislative approach to that um, doesn't take into consideration, like you were saying, some of the healthcare issues and things like that. Yeah. So, but what I found uh, was that on the issue of gun violence and the death penalty in particular, uh, Christians were not the champions of life. We were actually the obstacles mm. of it. I mean, you know, and, and, and some of this was really hard stuff to, uh, to, to come to realize is that 85% of the executions in this country happen in the Bible belt. 
exactly where I grew up down south. I mean, they're also the same states that held on to slavery the longest. Mm. But the Bible Belt is the death belt. Tennessee still uses the electric chair, the electric wow. chair. Right. Wow. And so, um, you know, that th- this is this is problematic. You know, I've, I've come to really see that the death penalty is not just an issue to debate, but it surfaces some of that. Um, really dangerous theology. And it raises some of the most important questions of our faith. Like, is anybody beyond redemption? Mm. Um, I I think those are questions that are raised by the death penalty. And the same with gun violence. Guns, uh, Christians own guns at the highest rate in the country. Like we own guns at a higher rate than the general population. And white evangelical Christians, in particular, the highest demographic of gun owners uh, in our country. So, you know, here we are, like, worshiping Jesus who said, love your enemies, and we're preparing to kill them. You know, like we, we literally are trying to hold a cross in one hand and a Glock in the other. And I think there comes a point where we see that the cross and the gun give us two really different versions of power. Yeah. One says, I'm willing to kill. The other says, I'm willing to die. And when you read the gospel um, of Jesus and the gospel uh, in little, uh, in quotes of the NRA, you know, like that's a problem. Like they, they really stand your ground and turn the other cheek or hard to reconcile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, some of your work um, with uh, against the death penalty. Are you seeing any progress there? I, I kind of follow, you know, your your Twitter feed. Um, and I know that's a lot of your activity there is aimed in that direction. It, are, are we making any progress there? Absolutely, man. I mean, I'm I'm really pumped about this one um, uh, for a lot of reasons. But one is, is that, um, you know, some things like, you know, the environment um, and, and uh, militarism, like, I think we can make progress, but, you know, it, it, it's slow. It feels so slow, you yeah. know. On the death penalty, I mean, I think we could be the generation that abolishes the death penalty. Um, every year, almost every year, a new state abolishes the death penalty. So Colorado just did that. And yeah. some of these states are led uh, by uh, conservatives or Republicans. Um, so this is not a, a partisan issue. In fact, in the last election, both presidential candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, were for the death penalty. Now we see a whole bunch of uh, folks that ran for that, that have been running for president that are against the death penalty. Um, and, you know, when polled, it's very clear that it's a older generation that's still holding on to the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Like millennial Christians, for example, poll it like 80% yeah. against the death penalty. So that's promising, you know, but, but even just in general, we, we finally reached the point where a majority of Americans are against the death penalty when, um, they're offered alternatives to it. So uh, executions are dropping almost every year to historic lows. Death sentences, which are kind of the futures of the death penalty, are the lowest they've been in like a generation, like 40 years. So those are all like really good indicators, but we've still got some hard work to do. And some of it's state by state. Some of it's, you know, the vigil at the Supreme Court. We do a vigil there every year on the steps of the Supreme Court. So, um, uh, but yeah, one interesting poll, I think it was Pew, they asked Americans, would Jesus be for the death penalty? And like 95% of Americans said, no, Jesus yeah. wouldn't be for the death penalty. We just got to convince the Christians, you know. To, to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, um, yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear, 
I'm glad to hear some hopefulness there because I think that's my, my dad used to have a saying. He always told me, son, it's a process, not an event. And, you know, I think about how things like this take time and sometimes it is two steps forward and one step back. But, you know, the, you know, the, the, the arc of history bends towards justice, I think, you know, and so yeah. we're moving in the right direction. Um, I think so. Yeah. So you've been doing a lot of work also with um, Reverend Dr. William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign. Um, can you talk a little bit about that um, that effort and and where it's going? I know you know in the wake of yet another you know racial um, shooting you know in the news, uh, even though it happened months ago, we're just now hearing about it. Um, you know these these intersections of race and poverty and white privilege um, seem to continue to be those things that keep pulling us backwards from the progress we seem to be making. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with Poor People's Campaign, uh, what Dr. Barber's doing, and and how maybe how people can get involved? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've been uh, uh, honored and thrilled to walk alongside all the great folks in the Poor People's Campaign, uh, I, I, folks like Reverend, you know, Liz Theo Harris, who I knew back in Philadelphia as an organizer here, uh, and, and uh, Reverend Barber. And um, so many great folks there. Uh, I mean, if folks are not familiar, they can, you know, check out the, the poor people's campaign online. And um, we, we've been, you know, building a movement around the country. There's stuff happening in state by state. Um, but Reverend Barber talks a lot about fusion organizing, right? Mm. We have to see that all these issues are intersectional. Um, and, and what's, uh, 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 it's hard to just care about a single issue. We need a movement that's really addressing those, but it's also offering an alternative vision, you know, so we call it a national call for moral revival. We believe that the political crisis in America is also a spiritual crisis. Yeah. And that, that, that there's, there's, um, some of this stuff that we're wrestling is not flesh and blood, but it's principalities and powers that run deep in this country. So, um, with the pandemic, there's a lot of things that are uh, sort of pivoting and, and, and uh, you know, evolving. And we were going to do a march on Washington um, on June 20th. Now that's going to be what looks to be the largest uh, virtual protest in history. So there's going to be all kinds of stuff happening uh, in a coordinated effort around the country. So folks can join the mass meetings that'll be happening and uh, join the action that'll be happening in June next month. But like you said, it's not about a moment. It's about a movement. And, mm. and we really think that uh, putting the 140 million uh, poor and low wealth folks in the spotlight and really allowing uh, um, our job is is to amplify those who are struggling, you know, and that's, again, I think the real test of a healthy society is, is how our most vulnerable people are doing. And when we, you know, I was a part of a witness on the border. Um, uh, so where, where we're addressing the separation of families, you know, the kids that are in detention centers. So we've seen some really, really alarming things happen over the past few years. And as Reverend Barber often says, um, so many of these things are not about left and right. Uh, they're about right and wrong. Yeah, so yeah. We're not just talking about a partisan thing. We're talking about a Jesus thing, you know, and, and a, a really a, a justice thing. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think, the idea of centering the voice of the marginalized. Um, I think we've kind of lost sight of that um, in a lot of ways in, in American culture. Um, but, but biblically, 
I don't know that you could find a more sound theme than centering the voice of the marginalized. You know, the, I, I often tell folks, you know, the Bible is, is the literature of the oppressed, um, but we often read it through the lens of privilege instead of through the lens of oppression. So, yeah, we, yeah. we created uh, ways of thinking where, like, for instance, uh, I heard someone say it yesterday that we're to be a voice for the voiceless. Um, and I, there there are uh, folks that have used that language. It's even in scripture in places. But you end up going, there's a lot of times where we jump up to be a voice for the voiceless when they actually have a voice. Yeah. And so what we would do better is to posture ourselves as the one who holds the mic and who stands alongside them rather than in front of them. And um, uh, so, you know, I think that kind of solidarity is what we need. And it's what we see in Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't just come to help the poor. He wasn't just this great philanthropist. He came born as a brown skinned Palestinian Jew in the middle of a genocide, was executed, uh, you know, jailed and executed on a cross. He, 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 he the whole story of Jesus is a story of divine solidarity, you know, with those yeah. on the borders and on the margins. Um, so, you know, I'm convinced that a lot of times in the, in, we, we don't have a compassion problem. We have a relationship problem and a proximity problem. Mm, yeah. It's not that we don't care about the ports and we don't know many folks. We're good at talking about Muslims or immigrants or whatever. But like, like in the end, these are not just issues to debate. They're neighbors to be loved. And if yeah. we really, once those, those statistics have names and faces like uh, Ahmad Arbery down in Georgia, like that's, that's what I think um, uh, puts a fire in our bones at the importance of things like racial justice. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, so that's, uh, that's a big part of what we, we've got to do. Mother Teresa, she said, uh, it can be very fashionable to talk about the poor, but not as fashionable to talk to them. Yeah. Uh, and if we really care about folks who are struggling, we, we know their names, we live in relationship to them. And, uh, and, and for many of us, this is not an intellectual enterprise. They were born into the struggle. And so we need to, you know, really uh, to center their voices and their stories as we try to sensitize other people's hearts. Yeah. Well, this is great stuff, Shane. And I could, I could go on forever, but I'm sure you've got a tight schedule today. And so we're kind of coming oh, close to the to end of the man. time. <laughs> um, is, is there, is there anything that anything new you're working on that our listeners might be interested in or where can people find you um, online or? Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about that comes to mind, I especially think for folks that might be trying to wrestle with how to ground ourselves in some kind of prayer or spiritual practices is I had the privilege of working with a, a whole ton of people a few years ago on a project called common prayer. And um, it's, it's uh, in a book form, it's online to commonprayer.net and it's in a, on a uh, app on mobile yeah, devices. I've got the app on my phone and my iPad. <laughs> yeah, man. I think yeah. especially in the pandemic, it's a great way to feel connected. And, and not only is it prayers, but, um, there's um, practices, you know, there's ideas of how to flesh out prayer, how to take action every month. We kind of think about a different 
uh, practice of the faith. And like this month, we're talking about hospitality, you know, and so there's uh, things like that that people might really uh, vibe with. Um, and people can can uh, follow me on I'm, I'm mainly on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and if you want to check out our local work, it's the simple way, the simple way dot org. And our work, you know, around the movement work uh, is redletterchristians.org. So really pumped to talk with you, man. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking some time and um, sharing with the uh, with the Accidental Tomatoes podcast listeners, and and hopefully um, hopefully see you at Wild Goose in twenty twenty one. I guess uh, I guess we got knocked out for this year, but we're gonna try again next year. Oh, so is, that, is that what happened? I didn't hear that. Yeah, yeah that was the latest. Was uh, they they kicked down to a September date, uh, and then um, Hot Springs passed an ordinance saying no festivals this year. So now they're looking at at next year. Well, man, there's all kinds of good stuff happening out there. I'm sure we'll cross paths. But now, for now, we'll uh, be praying for each other and uh, doing Amen. the common prayer together. And let me know uh, any way we can team up in, in the future. Outstanding. Thank you, Shane. Appreciate your right, help. Now. Thanks for being with us. Take care. So that's it for episode number 15 of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. Thanks again to Shane Claiborne for being our guest for this episode. And I really hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Shane uh, and maybe um, heard some things that maybe were new to you or that might inspire you for how you want to uh, be active in the world around us. As always, you can find Accidental Tomatoes online at accidentaltomatoes.com. And across the social media world, you can find us at Accidental Tomatoes. Please be sure to like and follow our Facebook page and our Twitter and Instagram accounts. That's where you can find the most up-to-the-minute updates of all of the things that are going on in our community. You can find me, Joe Webb, at my website, joewebwrites.com, where I blog every Tuesday. And on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, I'm at joewebwrites. If you have any ideas or suggestions for future topics or maybe even a new guest for the podcast, I would love to hear from you. You can, again, you can reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And if you enjoy our podcast, please, please, please be sure to go to your um, your podcast uh, app, whether it's iTunes or Google Play or Podbean, wherever you listen, and, and please give us a rating and a review, especially if you like what we're doing. Those are the kinds of things that can help other people find us and connect with our community and participate in these conversations we're having together. And if you'd like to support the work we're doing at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through the Patreon channel, where your support helps us offset some of the expenses of producing content for our community. Just go to patreon.com slash accidental tomatoes to learn more. And so keep on growing outside the fences and join us next time for the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. Podcast.